The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We're looking at that theme from 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you'll turn with me there, 1 Timothy 6, reading verses 6 through the end of verse 19, but our special focus is mostly verses 6 through 10. Let us hear God's word. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God, the blessed and holy and only Ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our own enjoyment." Command them who do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is God's word. Father, we ask for you to enlighten our hearts and minds as we seek to understand and apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There was an article a couple years ago in Discipleship Journal about the seven deadly sins, and it began this way. Recently, I took a tour of the advertising agency responsible for marketing the seven deadly sins today. It was surprisingly easy to get in. I simply called up the press relations department and asked to see their work. The marketing experts were delighted. They are quite proud of what they do. The sign in front of the ultra-modern office tower reads, P-A-L-S, PALS. The CEO greeted me in the polished mahogany and brass lobby with his three-piece suit. Do you know what we do here, he asked as he shook my hand. I understand you do the marketing for the seven deadly sins, I said. He frowned noticeably. 
Deadly is rather extreme, don't you think? Nuclear war is deadly. AIDS is deadly. Cancer is deadly. The habits that we promote are pleasant, fun, even healthy. We like to call them the seven pleasurable alternative lifestyles. PALS for short. But Jesus said, the CEO shuddered. The receptionist dropped her stapler. Please, we find that name offensive here. Do not mention it again. The CEO shook his head. Nowadays, we encounter few people who know or care what he said. If they did, our job would be much harder. The CEO frowned again. Then he looked at me and brightened up. Come, I'll show you each of our seven pleasurable alternative lifestyles. He peered at me with a little smile. I wonder which one you will find most appealing. Come with me. So he goes into the seven deadly sins, as historically they are known. Well, the seven pleasurable alternative lifestyles. Certainly you catch a little taste of the tongue-in-cheek nature of that article. Well, the idea there is that our society doesn't really look at these things maybe as sinful anymore. And that's certainly true for the area of covetousness or discontentment, not being content with what the Lord gives us. There's still remnants of conscience in Western society about some types of some sins. Maybe stealing would still be considered wrong. Murder, of course. Uh, Wasting the earth's resources would certainly be up there with one of the seven deadly sins nowadays. But covetousness or the lack of contentment is not seen that way. In fact, the underlying theme of most commercials is that it's good to want more and more. But the problem with all desire that is not oriented to a right relationship with God is that it doesn't satisfy and it leads us astray. So contentment is a fundamental character grace that's deeply linked to our love for Christ. And I want to look at our text tonight and think about contentment and think about the danger of discontentment, of, of a lack of contentment. The first point I want us to see is the definition of contentment. How do we define contentment? Well, we clearly see from our verse that contentment is, is great gain. Godliness with contentment, verse 6 says, is great gain. And covetousness or greed is clearly portrayed in Scripture as wrong. The Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. And then the commandment goes into specifics. In Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 5, both of those New Testament texts, when there's a command against covetousness, it's linked with idolatry. It exhorts us not to give in to covetousness, which is idolatry. That's repeated twice, both in Colossians and Ephesians. In other words, covetousness is a form of worship. Desire that is not submitted to God is never satisfied. Desire that is not submitted to God is never satisfied. So how would we define covetousness? Covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Covetousness is losing your contentment in God. Or you could turn that around. It's losing your contentment in God so that you start 
to seek contentment elsewhere. We really can't think about covetousness or contentment apart from the question of how we are in our relationship with God. Jesus goes straight to the heart of it in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's really at the heart of contentment. What are we treasuring? What do we love the most? And he says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve them both. You will only serve one. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And then later on in verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. That whole idea of contrast between contentment in God and desiring to be rich or desiring to and then fill in the blank. Covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God, so we must seek contentment in God. Listen to what Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6 speaks about. A familiar verse, it says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. In other words, don't love money. Be content with what you have. But then there's a reason appended to that. It says, because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You see, the the remedy and the cure for being caught up in the love of money or the love of anything apart from God is to remember true contentment in God. How can we be content with what we have? And the answer is to find our ultimate contentment in God. The Apostle Paul had learned this from experience at the end of Philippians in chapter 4. He talks to the Philippians. And it's interesting that Paul is writing a thank you note. You've probably never quite written a thank you note like this. That it takes him four chapters to get to saying thank you to them. He's so brimming over with his joy in Christ, this epistle of joy as it's called. And here is Paul writing to thank them for their gift in support of him during this very difficult time. He's in prison, you know. And he finally gets around to saying that he appreciates their gift. But interestingly, Paul wanted to thank the Philippians for their gift, but he wanted to do it in such a way because of the public nature of his ministry to make it clear to them that he wasn't greedy that he wasn't after them for their money's sake. And so he starts to thank them, and he says uh, he rejoices that at last they've renewed uh, their concern for him with this gift. And in verse 11 he says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. There's Paul. What a powerful statement. And that last verse, of course, is a verse that many of us know by heart. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. But it's especially in the context of learning contentment that Paul says he has this strength from Jesus Christ that whether he's well-fed or hungry, whatever the case might be, he is content in Jesus Christ. And he says, I have learned to be content. It's not something that comes naturally to any of us. 
Well, if that's what contentment is, let's look at some of the dangers of discontentment in our text. I want us to see a few of them here in verses 6 through 10. The first one is this, covetousness never brings satisfaction. Covetousness never brings satisfaction. We really already talked about this in our first point, but notice how this is the truth that pervades the verses, that people who want to be rich and who try for these things and the love of money and all of this, it's you're pursuing something that is fleeting. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This is also vanity. In other words, whatever you love and pursue, if it's not in relationship to God, will always be eluding you. You will never be satisfied. Your appetite will never be satisfied. You know how it is to eat a big Thanksgiving feast, and after you've eaten just about all you can eat, don't you have this sense that, you know, I'm never going to be hungry again. I don't think I'll ever eat again in my life. And then just about bedtime, you think, you know, I could use a little snack. You know, maybe I'll make a turkey sandwich. Oh, I'll get out some of that pumpkin pie. And lo and behold, that appetite, of course, that's a physical appetite, but that desire was not satisfied it came back. And, of course, that's a good thing. We know that appetite, in, its, in that sense, is a good thing. But the thing about all desire that's not linked to satisfaction and contentment in God is that it never ultimately satisfies. It's always just out there in front of it, like those greyhound dogs pursuing that rabbit, you know, or whatever it is they use to make those dogs run. It's always just a little bit faster than they are. I remember when we bought our house 16 years ago almost now. And this was the first house that we'd ever owned that had a two-car garage that actually fit our, our cars. Our other car, our garage in New Jersey didn't even fit our car. It was so small. We had a station wagon. But not only did it have a two-car garage, it still does, but it had electric garage door openers. And I just remember at the time thinking, I am a contented man. I will never, ever want anything more than this house. It's still a very nice house. But you know how it is. You get into a house, you get used to it, and you start thinking, you know, look at those houses they're building down the street. They all have at least two-and-a-half-car garages. You know, you need the other half because the lawnmower, the snowblower, I have to take out the car to get that in, all this stuff. It doesn't quite fit. Boy, in a three-car garage now, whoo, that would be living, wouldn't it? Somehow, what is it about the 50s, People didn't even have garages. Then they started to build one-car garages, now two. But I find in my heart, it's very deceptive, this lack of contentment. You know, no matter how good the gift of God, if it's not linked to satisfaction in God, it will not bring true contentment. The second danger we see from our text is that covetousness chokes spiritual life. We see this at the beginning of verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. This whole idea of, of discontentment is a temptation. It's a trap. Coveting 
whether it's your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's donkey or whatever it might be, or your neighbor's John Deere lawnmower. I've never done that, I I must say. No, tongue-in-cheek here. But look at what Jesus says in the parable of the soils. In the Gospel of Mark, for example, he talks about the seeds, and some of it fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. And then Jesus interpreted the parable and said that the seed is the word of God, the thorns choking the seed are, quote, the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. The thorns are those desires for riches and for other things that just slowly grow and entwine themselves around our hearts and they choke off spiritual life. Covetousness is very subtle. It's very dangerous. A battle rages, Jesus is saying. It's a competition between the desire for other things and the Word of God, which is the seed that Jesus Christ sows into our heart. And a battle rages when the Word of God is preached. The the desire for other things can be so strong that the beginnings of spiritual life can be just choked out by covetousness, by discontentment with what God is doing in your life. It's a warning that we should be on guard, really, every time we even hear the Word of God. Even as we're hearing the very Word of God, that we can be distracted with the desires for other things. Well, that kind of desire can take the form of the desire for other things or wealth We must not just think of other desires in those terms. We could go through all the scriptural kinds of categories of what wrong desire or illicit desire or inordinate desire, even for things that in and of themselves may be good. And so we could go through sexual lust or talk about the desire for power and achievement or success or the desires related to appearance or to be loved, or some hobby that we might have. We could go on and on. We must understand that discontentment chokes spiritual life. Whatever the area might be, desire is not neutral. It must be linked with true faith in Christ. Well, number three under these dangers is covetousness spawns many other sins. Verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The kind of heart that finds contentment in money and not in God is the kind of heart that produces all other kinds of evils. Desiring money is representative and indicative of the direction of our hearts. It's not that money in and of itself is wrong, but someone who's being ruled by the desire for money and things, or fill in the blank, whatever the the earthly, worldly desire that you have, then it is spawning many other evils and sins in our hearts. James chapter 4 verse 2 talks about we covet and and cannot obtain, so we fight and wage war. Talking about the desires that wage war within us and the fruit that they bring about in our relationships in terms of destructive conflict. 
Covetousness is a breeding ground for all other kinds of sins, and that heightens the warning to flee from it and the, the calling to fight for contentment in God with all of our might. Fourth danger, covetousness lets you down when you need help most. Look back at verse 7 where we see this description about uh, really our departure from this life. It says, For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it. Paul is saying, at the greatest crisis of your life, think about it. Think about how important these other things are to you. You know, Tuesday night, I had the upper respiratory thing that's going around, and I just spent this miserable night in bed, you know, with chills and just barely being able to, you know, survive. I thought I could pass into the glory that night. I was just so weak. And the next day, I just could hardly move. And just being reminded of that, I'm usually healthy and usually energetic and ready to go. And I said to Patty this week, I said, I think I know what it's going to be like when I finally do get old. See, I'm not really old yet. You young folks, I'm just still really young. I'm not going to have any energy left. You can lie there in bed and you think, how important are things really in this life? You know, it, it really, it brings into sharp focus what really counts in life. What Paul is saying is that the love of money or the love of anything unrelated to Jesus Christ, any earthly thing, even the love of good things in this life, ultimately let you down when it counts the most. In the greatest crisis of life, at the hour of death, we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. Covetousness betrays us. It reminds me of that scene from Dickens' Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge and the ghost of Christmas future. That was always the scariest ghost for me, of course. They didn't, that ghost didn't say anything. And, and when there's that scene that Scrooge sees his own deathbed and the maids or whatever they are are there taking the very clothes off his body, and he's just thinking, oh, you know, there's this revelation in that moment that he thinks, all that I've worked for and there's no one who cares about me, and even those who clean my house, they're taking the very clothes off my back. Covetousness lets you down. If you drop dead right now, would you take with you a payload of pleasure in God, or would you stand before him with a spiritual cavity where covetousness used to be? Well, the fifth danger is this. In the end, covetousness destroys the soul. At the end of verse 9, Covetousness destroys the soul. Covetousness, people who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. These desires, these uh, elements of discontentment, they bring ruin and destruction. And it's not talking about your business being ruined or financial ruin in that sense, although that may be, but it's talking about spiritual ruin and destruction, ultimately leading in the destruction of hell. So it's a, it's a very serious warning here. And it's in contrast, by example, to verse 12, where Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. 
In contrast to this ruin and destruction he's described, he's telling Timothy, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. He isn't just saying that greed can ruin your marriage or your business. He's saying that greed and covetousness can ruin your eternity, and it can betray a heart that is not trusting Jesus Christ. And so true contentment in God is great gain because it is a fruit of that godliness that springs from faith. And so we've seen the definition of contentment and we've seen the dangers of covetousness. And let's see finally some points of application here and two main ones that I want us to see. As as we hear all of this, I'm sure that most of you are shaking your head and saying, I know that. The Bible is very clear about that. Well, how do we apply it to our lives? Two main points. The first is this. Am I aware of my discontentment? Am I aware of my discontentment or my covetousness? You and I live in a world that is constantly trying to squeeze us into the mold of the world regarding covetousness. And in the West, particularly, with all the abundance and wealth that we have, I just don't think we even know how much in terms of the temptation to live is totally caught up with this present world. It's a very powerful thing. I think of that story in Luke 12 when these two brothers come to Christ. And they come to him in the midst of an argument and a fight. You can just almost imagine them heatedly discussing them. And then Jesus walks by, Jesus, can you solve this for us? Mediate this for us. And they want him to divide the inheritance. And of course, he says, who made me a judge over you? He doesn't do it. But it's interesting what he does tell them. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he goes on to tell the parable of the rich fool, the one who built all the barns. But you think of these two men. They both thought that they were right about how they thought the inheritance should have been divided. And not only that, I think they both thought that they were self-righteous and that the other one was wrong, and they had the moral high ground. But what really frightens me about what happens there is that these men had no clue that their hearts were totally entwined with the thorns of covetousness and greed. They thought they were being righteous. They thought they had truth on their side. And Jesus saw and cut through it all and said, everybody, listen, look at this. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And that's where you and I are living in this American society that we live on. We must be on our guard. We must be aware of how covetousness is finding its way into our hearts. And it certainly is in each one of our hearts. We all have to be on guard. It's like swimming at the beach. And they might have signs posted at at the lifeguard stand, warning, strong undertow. Be on your guard. Well, if that were the case, you would be aware of that, right? You wouldn't go out there and just think that you didn't have to worry about it, and parents would watch their kids, and you get out there, and, you know, it's easy if you're at the beach, and you're out there where it's pretty deep, and suddenly you're way past the lifeguard flags. You know, you're way down. Maybe the, the undertow's going to the left or to the right, or maybe it's going out, and without even thinking about it, you're being swept out to sea. That can be a very scary thing. 
Well, that's what it's like to live in the world. There is always an undertow, and none of us are immune from it. And if you don't see the danger signs, then you can be pretty sure that you're just going to be swept right along with it. The problem with guarding against covetousness is that there is not a scriptural prescription for what we may or may not have. Bible doesn't say it's wrong to have a two-and-a-half-car garage. It doesn't say it's wrong to have a three-car garage. It doesn't say it's wrong to have a one-car garage. Do you know that if you lived in any part of the world, that, like a third-world area, all three of those would be fabulously wealthy? And so we can't think, well, that's right and one's wrong. The issue is not the possessions per se, but the issue is our attitude and attachment to them. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't difficult decisions to make, and I'm not saying that we can just have all we want and everything we can afford and think, well, it's okay to have all that because the pastor says that the Bible doesn't specifically say, but the thing that we really have to guard against is a legalistic approach to this. We have to guard our attachment. And some of the questions we can ask ourselves about this is this. One would be, how much am I preoccupied with material things compared to the things of God? How much do just material things totally fill my mindset? Clothes, houses, cars, annuities, electronics, hobbies, none of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But what about God's word, prayer, the kingdom of God, the work of Christ locally and around the world? Remember the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. And then, after that, give us this day our daily bread. There's a priority to that prayer. And the kingdom of God comes before our daily bread. Another question to ask yourself is, how affected am I by material loss? If some of the things that I have would be taken away, how would I react? And maybe there would be a real and genuine sense of loss and grief with the loss of some of these things. But beyond that normal kind of grief, is there a sinful attachment to these things which shows that my heart is wound up with these thorns? I might want something, but do I still know joy in God if what God ordains in the words of the hymn is that I not have it at this present time. Kind of reminds me of a child who wants something, you know, and that six-year-old gets in a bad mood if they don't get it. And we know that's a childish response. But how much are we like that in our more sophisticated adult ways if we're not getting what we want? And it might be a grief, and it might be a sense of loss, but are we able to have joy in Christ even when we don't get what we want. Another question to ask is, how often do things get in the way of truly loving and serving the people in my life? How much do things get in the way of not loving others? Covetousness is a root sin, and the fruit of these kind of sins show up in our relationships. You know, if a parent is too caught up in their things then it's possible that if a child messes something up, then it could be that the fruit in that parent's life shows they're too attached to it. Or if a dad, you know, if a, if a teenage son puts a ding in the car and the 
father flies into a rage, well, maybe that's an overreaction. Maybe it exposes something of our sinful heart and that we're too attached to these things. The way a desire may be ruling us shows up in how we interact with others when those desires are thwarted. And usually that takes place with those who are nearest and dearest to us. So first of all, am I aware of areas of covetousness in my life? And secondly, briefly, the other application is this. Am I growing in my contentment in God? That's the real way to fight covetousness, to cultivate this godliness with contentment, which we're told is great gain. We fight covetousness by faith focused on the promises of God. Think of that undertow example again. And let's say you're out there in the undertow being dragged out in great peril of your life. And you cry out for help. And the lifeguard throws that, you know, that uh, inner tube, whatever it's called to you, and it's tied with a strong rope to the lifeguard stand that's anchored in that, in that sand somehow. And you grab onto that line and hold on for life. That, to me, would be an analogy of the promises of God are the rope and the inner tube. And you're holding on to that. And they're anchored in the faithfulness of God himself, that lifeguard stand that, let's say, it goes down into the rocks. That's the way we fight covetousness. We fight for contentment in God by holding the promises of God in Christ. The promises that uh, he will never leave or forsake me, according to Hebrews 13.6. The promise that we read later on in 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Notice the uncertainty there. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything. Hebrews 6.19 talks about Jesus Christ, our great priest, He's the anchor. And we have an anchor that goes not down, but up into the heavenly, where Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. And so we can't fight the battle against greed only with halfway measures. We have to fight it with faith in Jesus Christ and joy in Christ and contentment in God. And so we ask ourselves, am I satisfied more and more? with God himself? Am I thankful for the blessings God has given me now? And am I increasingly dependent on Jesus Christ to transform my heart and to produce in me true contentment in God alone? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that godliness with contentment is great gain. How we need to hear that We thank you that you have not set us in this culture and in this society and place and time by chance in any way, but by your purposes for good for your people's lives. And we thank you, though, even though the the battle rages day by day and week by week, and even though we many times fall and slip into sin and fail in unbelief and we don't trust you and we are not content, we thank you that because we belong to Jesus Christ, he will not let us fall out of his hand, 
but that he will keep us to the end. And we pray that you would build us up in a genuine satisfaction in the things of God, in a delight in your word, in meditating on the things above, 